All right. Good morning, everybody. How you guys feeling today? All right. Hey, before we get going on the message, just to, I want to touch on a couple things that Pastor Gabe mentioned. Um, first of all, the Christmas uh, invites that are on your chairs. Um, I don't know if it's scriptural, but it feels right to me. I believe that every time one of those is left on the seat and nobody takes it, an angel sheds a tear. <laughs> believe that. It just feels right to me. Don't make an angel cry. Take them with you. We've got plenty, so you're not leaving them for the next guy. Take them with you and, uh, and invite somebody. Leave it just accidentally. Leave it on the counter at Starbucks or something like that. Uh, whatever, whatever works for you, but let's do that. I want to I wanna fill this with people who want to celebrate Jesus on Christmas, so let's, let's try and do that. The other is Angel Tree. I know she mentioned Angel Tree in depth, but I want to talk about it from the other side really quick. Uh, a lot of you know, and some of you don't, that I've been involved in prison ministry for years, actually going into uh, the federal prison in Inglewood and then the uh, Denver Women's Correctional that's over uh, off of Havana in Denver. And getting to minister to the inmates there is an amazing thing. They are so hungry to find something outside of themselves that they can rely in and trust on. And they, there is a deep yearning to know more about the Lord there. So it's such a blessing to be able to minister to them. But what's also a blessing is every year rolls around the time for Angel Tree. And they put sign-ups out in the facility, and the inmates need to go, and they sign up to be a part of the program. To see the lines that form and their excitement, Angel Tree is next weekend, next weekend, next weekend. They're so excited that leading up to it that somebody on the outside cares enough about them and enough about their children. Once they go inside, they're pretty much conditioned to think that society has forgotten about them, nobody cares about them. And it's hard for them to grasp that someone that they've never met can show enough love to them and their family to do something like that, something selfless like that for them. So I see that. I also see that the staff, the, the warden, the guards, they all love it when it comes around because the inmates are so excited to be a part of this program, they're on their best behavior in the weeks and months leading up to it because otherwise they're going to be restricted and they won't be able to go sign up. So it's great for everybody, but really what, just, what a perfect biblical way to show love for somebody that, that you've never met, probably never will meet, but you get to show them the love of Christ, that somebody does care. So consider doing that. If we can clean out those angels this weekend, that would be absolutely the best. Don't miss out, because if we do clean out, you won't get one if you're planning on coming next weekend and doing it. So let's do that. All right, uh, I want to get into the message right away, because I think I've got uh, what to me is an exciting message. I know I said last week was exciting. This week is even more exciting to me. Um, if you're a visitor here, special welcome to you, and also a warning. Welcome and a warning. We are teaching our way through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the full title of the book that people commonly call Revelation. And it's not taught on an awful lot because there's an awful lot of imagery. There's an awful lot of, and you can't, you can't sugarcoat it. There's fire and brimstone and judgment and wrath, and there's all those things in it. And so many people see the revelation of Jesus Christ as just being, it's just wrath. And so they don't even want to read it. They think that God somehow is all happy and warm and cuddly right all the way through the New Testament. And then when it comes to the end, 
the final chapter in his word that he gave us, all of a sudden then he's angry again. God has always been the same. And so when you read this book and you study this book, you find out that it's not a book about wrath and judgment. It's a book of hope. It's a book that ought to give us hope, knowing that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in society and has always gone on in society, that God is and has always been in control. He's always known what was going to happen. He's always had a plan. Nothing catches him by surprise. And he's always had a way. And he loves us enough to make a way for us to accept the lifeline that is Jesus Christ every step along the way. And I've said this several times. Nobody will accidentally end up in hell. If you end up going through this judgment and end up in what's described as the lake of fire... You're there because you've been rebellious and you've made a choice. It's not going to be accidental. He makes a way at every turn. And to me, that's exciting. And to me, that's hope. So we're going to go through this. Again, for newcomers, we have been reading. We're in chapter 21 now. Next week is the final chapter. Can you believe that? About five months we've been going through Revelation. And I hope you guys have been getting some life out of it. Um, But we teach... Word by word, verse by verse. Scripture actually says in Revelation 1-3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. So it's the only book that says you're blessed if you read it, blessed if you hear it. And so I'll be reading in a moment the entire chapter 21. You'll hear it. If you've missed any of them, go back, check out our podcast. You can get the podcast through our website, Uh, Or you can go through Google Play or iTunes and catch them there. But I recommend that you listen to the whole thing because it is is so life-giving. So we're going to go through it. Um, Last week, just a quick recap kind of on where we are so that everybody knows. Last week, we learned really that we are overcomers through faith in Jesus Christ. If you say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and you profess faith in him, Word says you are an overcomer. You are an overcomer. Your name is written in the book of life. It's there. Because we see all throughout the Bible, and especially at Revelation, that we're told, persevere, persevere, persevere. In fact, if I boiled the whole book of Revelation down to one sentence, it would be, persevere and receive the prize. Persevere and receive the prize. Now, at the time that this revelation was given to the Apostle John, remember, the Apostle John was in exile. He'd been essentially imprisoned, thrown onto this island in Patmos. And rather than to kill him somehow in God's mercy, they, they just put him there and exiled him, and he received this vision. But at this time, the Roman government, the Roman emperor, was persecuting Christians at a at a way that, that had never been seen before or since. They were being beheaded. They were being martyred. They were being killed in all kinds of, of heinous, terrible ways. Being imprisoned was probably the best thing that could happen to you at that point if you were a Christian. So when he talks about persevere, 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 he's not talking about, hey, just, you know, when you look at a TV show, it's mocking Christians. 
When you go to work, it's hard to share your faith openly because people will make fun of you, or maybe you'll get passed up for a promotion, or maybe people won't sit next to you in the lunchroom. That's the kind of, of persecution, if you will, that we go through today. Back then, it was literally a life or death thing. And so when you were being told to persevere, it meant a lot. Persevere and you'll receive the prize. Over and over again, persevere and you'll receive the prize. If you're being told to, to hang tough, persevere, stick with us through all these things that are going on, and even today, we're still told, persevere today and you'll receive the prize. Well, that better be some prize, right? That better be some prize. Have you ever given much thought about what that prize looks like? Okay, we've been taught in various ways that it'll be communion with God, that it'll be all your needs will be met, it'll be heaven, whatever your vision of heaven is. We get to talk about that in depth today, but first I want to ask you, when you start thinking about the prize, what does the prize look like to you? I've got some questions. Does it look like this to you? You're just chilling on a cloud. You're just hanging out kind of by yourself, kicking it. You're looking down. Maybe, uh, maybe you'd have a harp in your hands or a lyre. You know, you'd be playing some music. Does that look like paradise and heaven to you? Not to me. Uh, for a few minutes, it'd be nice to have peace and quiet, but then I'd get bored pretty quick. What about this next one? What about that? Streets of gold. We've been taught the streets of gold in heaven, right? They're paved with gold. That would be pretty cool. What about this next one? What about that? I don't know if you can see that. It's a, it's a Roman feast. He's reclining back there. They're feeding him grapes. If you don't like, like grapes, maybe it's tacos, whatever it is they're, they're feeding you. And if you don't like tacos, you have no business here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe it looks like that. Does that is that what the prize, that's what you picture. When I'm, when I'm in heaven, this is going to be me, just reclining and being fed and everything will be taken care of. It might look like that. But I don't believe it does. I think today we're going to talk about, in chapter 21, it's so exciting, we get to talk about what the prize really is, despite what we have in our minds, what the prize really is. Okay, but before we get to that, let's do a quick recap, especially for the visitors, where we are in this progressive revelation. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ from chapter 1 to the very end is progressive, Okay, it's not always exactly chronological. It skips around, lots of imagery, but it is progressive in terms of the judgments, the wrath, slowly get turned up. The heat, if you will, slowly gets turned up by a God who wants nothing more than everybody who's left to realize that they need his son Jesus and turn to him. It's not, well, you guys missed the boat, so here it comes, here comes the wrath. He's going to turn it up slowly in an effort for us to say, even when we see mountains collapsing and, and earthquakes and we see rivers of blood and lakes and streams and oceans literally turning to blood, swarms of locusts, and we see these things, it's not in an effort to punish us. It's in an effort to get us to turn to his son Jesus, to realize we can't stand against this. We need help. 
And we see that over and over again. So in the last chapter, so last week, we found us ourselves in this place. Satan was captured and bound and thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. A thousand years into the abyss. Remember, the abyss is not the lake of fire, two different things. The abyss, he's thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. The dead literally come to life and reign on earth with Christ for a thousand years. For a thousand years. Now, at the end of a thousand years, Satan is released. Why would that happen? If you want the answer to that, listen to last week's message. We talk about that. Why that happens. But he's released and he again challenges God only to then ultimately be thrown into the lake of fire which is hell. That's the final place of damnation for him. That's where he's thrown. Him and his followers and those who rebelled at, this, at that time, thrown their allegiance behind Satan, they are cast into hell for good. The unbelieving dead are judged before the throne of Christ. And they're cast into the lake of fire. We see at the very end of last chapter, heaven and earth have fled away is the words that it uses. Heaven and earth disappear. There's nothing left anymore but a formless void. This is where we are in this time. It's a clean canvas. Now note it said heaven and earth have fled away. Even heaven needed to be replaced, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's a clean canvas. So remember the other time that there was a clean canvas that God had to work with. Anybody remember when that was? It was kind of at the beginning, right? Genesis 1.1. First book, first chapter, first verse. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. A blank canvas for him to work out his plan and his heart, and his desire, which was to have communion with his creation, to hang out with us, basically, right? That was his original plan. But this time, what we see now, heaven and earth have fled away. It's been taken care of. It's gone, and he's starting over. Starting over, not just replacing what was there, but he's starting over better. It's going to be better, and I'm going to talk to you in a minute about how it's better and how we know that it's better. But the old heaven and earth have been taken away to clear the way for the ultimate prize. That's what we get to talk about in this chapter. So this week, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 21, it's one of the longer chapters. It's 27 verses. Now, I use the New American Standard Version. It's just the one I like to study out of. So if you have that, you can follow along. I'm not putting it up on screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Or you could follow along in your translation. It might be just a little bit different. But I'm going to read the whole thing. Try and imagine in your head what's going on. And then we'll go back and we'll talk about some of the imagery and some of the things that are happening here. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 27. Read like this. Then I saw a new heaven... And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and spoke, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had, been, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were written the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, and its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, fifteen hundred miles. Its length and width, the height and height, are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysophrase, the eleventh, hasinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
That is a prize. Let's talk about it, though, because I think a clear understanding of what that really looks like and what's really happening here is important for us to grasp the significance of what's happening. So let's start looking at some of the individual scriptures. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. That word new right there, new heaven, new earth, it's a Greek word that is pronounced kahinos, and what it means is basically new and improved. It doesn't mean the old heaven, the old earth were simply rebuilt. That word indicates new and improved, better, better than it was. It's not just the newest thing, better than the old. Even heaven had been contaminated by the presence of sin. It says new heaven and a new earth. Heaven itself had to be replaced. Remember why? Because Satan and his demons had access to heaven. Right up almost until the end, had access to heaven where he stood before the throne of God accusing us before God. So even heaven had been contaminated, if you will, by the presence of sin and by the presence of Satan. And God said, you know what? I'm starting over. A new heaven, a new earth. That little phrase, it's kind of at the bottom, and there was no sea, no longer any sea. That one kind of, kind of brush over that sometimes. But let's talk about that for a second. Is that literal or symbolic? Scholars argue both directions. They argue that the sea is just symbolic. It's symbolic for mystery, for darkness. We remember the serpent came up out of the sea. We remember Babylon had a millstone around its neck and was tossed into the sea. We see all kinds of unpleasantness coming out and through the sea, right? The Jewish people, the Israeli people, were not a seafaring people, right? They didn't have their own fleet of ships. They were pretty much landbound unless they hooked a ride with somebody else. So oceans were seen as a barrier to getting where they needed to go. It isolated them. So having no oceans, no seas, eliminated that barrier, eliminated the place for darkness and things to hide out down in there. Okay? That could be the symbolic uh, part of it that people talk about. I believe that it's literal for those reasons, but also for another reason. We see in chapter 22, we'll talk about it next week, that we see the river of life literally flows from the throne of Christ throughout the rest of the world. Now, what does the ocean do? One of the ocean's primary functions right now is that the sun beats down on it, evaporation rises up, that becomes fresh water in the clouds, which then rains down over the land to give life to crops It fills lakes, it fills streams, it fills rivers. It gives life that's no longer needed. Next week, we'll we'll talk about Revelation 22, the river of life flowing from the very throne of God. That's all the life that we need. So there's no longer any need for that. Revelation 21, 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now this New Jerusalem, this is the Father's house. Remember a certain scripture talking about the Father's house? Remember Jesus was with his disciples, and he was going to head down and to what ultimately would lead to his 
to his capture and his crucifixion. And he tells them, he's trying to comfort them. John 14, 2, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. He's giving them this hope. In my Father's house, there's a place for you. I'm going to go ahead and prepare it for you. This new Jerusalem is his Father's house that we're talking about here. We'll talk more about that here in just a minute. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. No more separation. No more separation. All the way back from almost the beginning, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God had been separated from his people. We saw that all all over, but... We also saw God made a covenant with Moses that he would be our God, we would be his people. And this is the fulfillment of that. We start seeing that. Leviticus 26, 11, 12 talks about it, where it says, Moreover, this is God speaking to Moses, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. That word dwelling is the Hebrew word mishkan, and it literally means home, or another translation is the word tabernacle that we see. God promises that his home will be among us. And this is what we see happening right here. Literally what we see, the new Jerusalem, is God's house. So why is this something to rejoice over then? We were told as we lead up to this, it gets more and more reasons to rejoice, and ultimately the fulfillment of God's plan should be reason to rejoice. But why specifically should we rejoice over this? I think the next verse, 21.4, gives us a good clue. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So what are the first things? The first things is the opposite of this. Tears, sadness, death, mourning, crying, pain. All those things are now gone. This is reason to rejoice. Revelation 21, 5, 6. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write For these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And we see that term, the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It was a common phrase that was used at the time, meaning that's all. It's the entirety of everything. It's the beginning to the end. And what Jesus is doing, scholars do argue, by the way, the one who sits on the throne, whether that's Father God or whether that's Jesus. I believe Scripture points to this being Jesus. But when he says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, he's hearkening back to what God actually told the prophet Isaiah or showed him who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning, the Lord I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. 
Okay, so that's the Lord God, Father God saying those things. This is Jesus identifying himself as one with the Father. Now, John, think about this. You're the Apostle John. Jesus had taught, I am the Father and the Father are one. Okay, he had taught that. But that whole idea of the Trinity was something that wasn't solid in anybody's mind yet. In fact, it was several hundred years later when a whole bunch of theologians had to get together at various councils and even just talk about what does the Trinity actually really look like. So this is something that wasn't clear to them, but here, John, as he witnesses this, and he sees Jesus on the throne saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, it had to hit home to him now. It's true. Jesus that I walked with, Jesus that I learned from, Jesus and the Father are one because here he is on the throne. It had to be that aha moment to him where things started to make sense. Then it talks about the spring of the water of life, and he'll give it without cost. That echoes again back to Isaiah. By the way, if you are not reading Old Testament scripture, if you're one of these people that just focuses on the new, that's fine, but you miss so much if you don't understand the fullness of, of the Bible, how every single chapter, all the way from Genesis all the way through, especially when you talk about the prophets, you talk about Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel, and you talk about the ways that they foreshadow what's happening later and how long, 700, 800, 1,000 years prior to these things unfolding or being shown to the Apostle John, they're being shown these things. And it helps us to understand how God has always had a plan. Again, this isn't a surprise to him at all. He's always known, and he's given us these breadcrumbs along the way, these little clues so that we can see he has always known, and he's always been trying to tell us. We just haven't seen it. I love that. But everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come. That's from Isaiah 55. In other words, the water is priceless but it's offered freely to those who come to him. I love that. Revelation 21, 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, the new Jerusalem is also identified as the bride, right? And we see this in Scripture other times where Babylon is, is both a city and a kingdom, but also a spirit associated with a certain type of people. We see that with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see places where the people kind of, or the city takes on the character of the people. And so here we see the new Jerusalem being identified with the bride of Christ, and it's taken on that character. Now, another thing about Old Testament that's just interesting, we go back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40, verse 2, 700 years before John is seeing this prophetic vision here, Ezekiel sees a vision like this. It says, in the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south, there was a structure like a city. Okay, and he goes on to describe that more. But what is happening here, what Ezekiel is seeing is the glory of God had departed the earthly temple at that point. And he's being promised 
There will be a reunification, if you will, later. He's being shown that this is what it's going to look like. He's being shown the time and the place where they will be reunited again. And God will again be with his people. Now, God, uh, John goes on to describe more of the vision here. Revelation 21, 11 says, Having the glory of God, her brilliance, talking about the city, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, we have any geologists out there or jewelers or anything who know what jasper looks like? What's jasper look like? Is it clear? Can you see through it? Not really. It's kind of an opaque stone, right? So we look at it like, well, it's okay, crystal clear jasper doesn't really make sense, right? Like a lot of things in Revelation, doesn't immediately make sense. But we need to realize that a lot of this is a direct translation. What this is, though, this word where it says jasper, it's not a translation, word for word. It's called a transliteration. I don't expect you to remember that necessarily, but what it means is it sounds like. Okay, what they're talking about here in reality is a diamond. They're talking about a diamond. But the word that they used was jasper, a transliteration for what they were talking about. This is perfection, reflecting the very character of her creator. Revelation 21:15 says, "And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall." So remember, if we go back to Revelation 11, and I'll just read this to you, where they're being told to measure the temple and the courts, right? Here, they're given the same measuring rod. Go measure the temple and the courts. But it reads like this. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and don't measure it. For it's been given to the nations, and they'll tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. In other words, the temple courts had been desecrated. And so God was saying, measure the temple. That still belongs to me. The courts, I'm giving them over. The courts don't belong to me. Here, though, Revelation 21:15, the one who spoke had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall, meaning the entirety of the city belonged to God. And he was claiming that. When you took a measuring rod, it was like what we would call uh, a survey now. You're doing a measuring rod to lay out the territory that belongs to you. And this is what's happening here. Revelation 21, 16, 17. The city is laid out as a square. Now think about the size of this when you think about a measuring rod that you could hold in your hand and you're using it to measure the entire city. Think about this. Revelation 21, 16, 17. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards. That's thickness, not height according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Now, those of you who are mathematicians, and I'm certainly not, so I admit I looked this up, that equates to about 2 million square miles of livable space. About 2 million square miles. Anybody know how many square miles are on the entire earth livable space? It's about 200 million square miles. So in other words, about a tenth of the surface of the earth, livable space, is now taken up in this new Jerusalem. Now here's an image so you can get an idea of the scale. That's huge. Now some people argue that the cube shape is, is just symbolic. 
right? So in other words, if somebody were to ask you, how big is Denver? You said, how big is the city of Denver? You would say, okay, the city of Denver, and I haven't looked at a map, but you would say, oh, it's about um, 20 miles by 30 miles by tallest building is maybe 1,500 feet, okay? Or maybe you would say it was a mile high. Maybe you would say that. But it's not really a cube, right? But you describe it that way. So some people say that this is not a perfect cube, but I actually believe that it is. As awkward as that looks, sitting perched on top of the earth, I believe it is an actual perfect cube, and I'll tell you why. It parallels perfectly the dimensions and the shape of the inner sanctuary of the temple of God. The place that's described in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 6.20, says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. And, it was, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This is the place where God himself would go to meet with the, the, it's called the Holy of Holies, to meet with the Israeli high priest. He would go there once a year on what's called Yom, Yom Kippur is what we call it right now. The Day of Atonement is what they called it then. The high priest would go into this place, offer a sacrifice on, the, on what was also called the mercy seat. He would offer a sacrifice for his people, for himself. But this whole thing was covered with a giant veil or a giant curtain to separate people from God. God could only tolerate the presence of the high priest even for short periods once a year. He certainly could not be in daily communion with his people. And this is why it's such a big thing now. Because that shape perfectly alters that God's, God's dwelling place on earth at that point was that inner sanctuary. Now his inner sanctuary is going to be among his people. There's no more curtain, there's no more veil, there's no more separating us from him. I said last night, if you wanted to pop over to God's house for dinner, you'll be able to do that. Probably be a line, but you still. God's sanctuary is now going to be literally among his people. Verses 18 to 21 go on and kind of describe the rest of the materials that are used in the making of the city. Walls like jasper. The city was pure, clear gold. The foundation, all kinds of precious stones. Each of the 12 gates was made from a single giant pearl. The streets were pure gold like transparent glass. All of the materials are transparent. It says over again, like clear gold, transparent glass. The reason for that is because God's glory will shine throughout all of New Jerusalem and throughout the new earth. God's glory will actually illuminate everything. There's no shadow. There's no hiding places. There's no darkness anywhere. So the streets, the walls, everything is literally made of a clear material where God's glory will shine through. There will be no night. And the gates, the gates which are made of a giant single pearl, this is symbolic. Anybody know how a pearl gets formed? Irritation, irritation or a wound, so to speak, right? They're symbolic of the wounding of Jesus Christ. But out of that, something beautiful comes, okay? And so this is what the pearls are symbolic of. There'll be no night, 
There's no sun and moon. God himself is providing this eternal light, and the gates will never be closed. The gates will never be closed. Here's what I think the new Jerusalem really looks like. Artist's rendering, not an actual photo. 1,500 miles high, shining so much with God's glory that I imagine the closer you get, the harder it is to even make out detail of what it looks like. But I do think that it's a cube like that, echoing what that inner sanctuary looks like. But here's some attributes of what the new earth, so that's the new Jerusalem, the city on the new earth. So here's some attributes of it. There will be mountains to climb. There will be rivers, streams, beauty to explore, room to spread out. If you don't want to live in the city, you don't have to live in the city. There's a place for you there. But if you want to go out into the country and move around and have some room, you can have that. We will still have free will, just like Adam and Eve did. Think about that for a moment. Those of you who have been paying attention the last few chapters, we see where God has continued to purge, to use that word, people who have been through the tribulations, who are believers, but maybe not quite right in the heart. And he's continued to purge them over and over again up until the last point where he introduces Satan as a bait, if you will, to expose those who are not right with him who don't fully give their heart to God. And he's exposing them so that he, can will, that he can eliminate them because you'll still have free will here. The new heaven, the new earth. You'll still have free will. You'll be able to make choices. We'll have jobs, just like Adam and Eve did. Their job was to tend the garden. We will have jobs. We will have things to do. We'll be able to travel about freely. No restrictions, no passports, no things like that. No oceans to stop us. We can go anywhere we want. No class structure. There's no rich. There's no poor. There's no haves and haves nots. Everybody will have everything they need to fill their days with joy. In other words, it will be perfect. It will be absolutely perfect. And I love C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. He's, he's a quote factory. He comes up with the most wonderful quotes. Listen to this quote that C.S. Lewis has about heaven. He says this, Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Mm, I love that picture. Imagine the fullness of joy and the perfection that it will be to have your place in heaven that's made for you and you for it. And so when you're there, there'll be nothing that you need, nothing you wished you had, because it will all be there for you already. Here's kind of an image of the new heaven, new earth. The glory of God shining from New Jerusalem in the, in the distance, providing light to everything. But it's just a peaceful, idyllic place. Maybe your portion of this doesn't look exactly like that, but it's going to be perfection. One thing, though, that's conspicuously missing is God's temple. There's no more temple. Verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 22 
says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need for a temple structure. God himself will be our shelter. It's not needed anymore. Revelation 21, 27 says this, And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, this is a rhetorical statement that at this point, there's nobody who's going to practice any of those things. But remember, this is being written because the Apostle John got a vision thousand years ago about what this is going to look like. And he's warning people, remember, if your heart is in this place, you're not going to be in there. This is not a place of exclusion. This is not uh, a place that says the gates will never be closed. Which begs the question, I want to ask you, why are there gates? Why are there gates and why is there a wall? Anybody ever think about that? Obviously, there's 12 gates. There's a giant wall. Why? I think it's because we need, even then, we will need a reminder of what could be. The gates are open. They're never closed. It's open to all. You can freely go in and commune with with the Lord any time that you want. But there is another side. There's an alternative. Because you're there, the gates are open. What if they weren't? There are people who will not be admitted to here. And I think that it's important that we know that it's only by God's love and mercy that we have literally been snatched from the lake of fire and we have access to him. It's only his mercy that allows that. I also believe this. We will not only remember our past, but we'll be encouraged to remember our past. Some people say when you go there, all of a sudden your brain is wiped clean. In fact, if you read Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 17, it says, For behold, I create new heaven and new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Some people see that and say, well, when you get there, you'll have no memory of life on earth. You'll have no memory of your past or your relatives or anything else. Well, I don't believe that's how it works. That word remembered actually translates as the idea of celebrated. Okay, the former things won't be celebrated anymore. They'll still be in your mind. This is not, this is not one of these. Remember the technical name for that? It's not a flashy thing. It's neuralizer. It won't be, okay, you can take that down. It won't be a neuralizer where all of a sudden you remember nothing. And why I believe it's important to know that we'll retain our memories but the overwhelming peace and joy of God is what's going to dominate your thoughts. Throughout the Bible, God has reminded us over and over again to remember what has happened. Remember what you came from. Remember what God got you through. This is going to be no different. In fact, we see in, in uh, Revelation 15 where the saints in heaven are singing a song of Moses. They're singing a song celebrating what Moses went through and what God took him through. Genesis 9 with Noah and the rainbow as something to remember. Exodus and the celebration of Passover, right? Esther and the celebration of Purim. What about Jesus on the cross in communion? We're told over and over again, don't forget the former things. Remember them. 
and celebrate the good, the things God has gotten you through. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up. So why is it important, I believe, why is it important to remember? Think about this. Listen to this. A blessing without contrast is often mistaken for the mundane. A blessing with no contrast is unappreciated. You'll mistake it for the everyday. Without war, could we understand what a blessing peace is? Without need, would we be able to appreciate plenty? Without sickness, would we take our health for granted? Without the penalty of sin, could we understand the gravity of salvation in Jesus Christ? Without eternal damnation of the lake of fire, could we understand what it's like to be with God in the glory of heaven? And without being separated from God, could we ever fully appreciate the ability to stand in his presence? I believe we're not only going to remember those things, but it's just going to make us thankful. And if you know Jesus, your name is written in the book of life, and you will be there. You'll get to see it. Do you realize that? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you'll get to see that. You'll get to see firsthand exactly what it looks like and goes, I knew that picture was wrong. That's the first thing many of you will say. But this is so much better will be the second thing that you'll say. If you persevere to the end, that prize awaits you. Church, Jesus has gone ahead to prepare your place in heaven. It's there. Your place is there for you now, prepared and ready, custom made for you. Are you ready for it? That's the thought I want to leave you with. Are you ready for it? If you know Jesus, your name is in the book of life, your place is prepared. But what if you're here and you don't know Jesus? If you're here and you know of Jesus, you're in a church, so you probably know this guy, Jesus, you kind of roughly know about him. But have you given your heart to him? Have you said, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, and I give myself to you because I want my name in the book of life. I want to walk with you in the day. I wanna know that my future is secure. Scripture says it's very easy to do. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. If you do that, if you are in the place right now where you wanna make that decision, maybe for the first time ever, we have prayer team in back who would be happy and just honored to pray with you. We've got some books back there that kinda help guide you through the first steps. If you're making that decision for the first time today, I would be happy to pray with you for that. But for the rest of us, let's celebrate by going into a time of communion. One of those times to celebrate what God has done for us. So if you're new here, the way we do communion, at the crosses, both of them, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers, your choice, and you just dip it in the juice and you can serve yourself or your family there. Up front, we'll have two stations, one here and one here, where we will serve you and we'll have wine up front and we would serve you that. You don't have to be a member of the church or a regular attender or anything. You just simply have to be thankful of what Jesus Christ did for you and have accepted that gift. And let's move about right now, start taking communion together, but let's just do it with grateful and thankful hearts. Before we do that, let's just pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, that this ultimate prize awaits us, but not only then and there, but here and now. 
you have offered your son Jesus to pay the penalty for us so that we could live in your blessing. And so, Father, let us understand and receive the fullness of what that blessing is and what it looks like. Let us not ever take a day for granted. Let us come to mind now what life today would be like without your influence on this earth. Father, we thank you for everything that you have done. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. Still your face. 